Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Standing Strong in Trying Times, a study of the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel gives stories of faithful believers standing strong in trying times of exile and visions of the ultimate victory of God's kingdom over the kingdoms of this world. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's word in your life today. Well, we're going to dive into Daniel chapter 6 today. For those who are newer, we've been working through the book of Daniel. So we're about halfway through. We are in Daniel 6. And today we're going to look at new boss, same as the old boss. And if you don't catch that reference from a classic rock song, shame on you. Uh, Daniel chapter 6. And again, I'm going to take time to go ahead and read the whole chapter because I remind you as I do regularly, most important thing is hearing the word of God. So please listen to what God has breathed out and spoken to us. Daniel chapter 6, it'll be up here on the screen. Uh, it's not in the booklets because it's so long, but um, encourage you to follow along in your Bible. I'll be using the NIV. Hear now the word of the living God. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So the administrators and the satraps went as a group to the king and said, O King Darius, live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, O king, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows were open towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or man except to you, O king, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who's one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to the king and said to him, remember, O king, 
that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. And the king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. And when he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? And Daniel answered, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight nor have I ever done any wrong before you, O king. The king was overjoyed, and he gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language throughout the land, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. May God bless the reading of his word. When I was a uh, young man a long time ago, in the 1960s, revolution was in the air. Uh, I remember, you know, all the stuff that was going on with the hippies. I remember going into Chicago with my grandfather, who had been born in the late 1800s, and he was just shocked and amazed as he looked at the hippie culture that had grown up there in Chicago. In 1967, you had the summer of love, and you had all of the things that were going on that were fomenting for change. The sexual revolution had come, and many people who were leading it, including many musicians, believed that when this change would come, everything would be good. And then the 1970s came, and there was great disillusionment. And that was captured in a song uh, written by Pete Townsend and performed by The Who in 1971, and the song was entitled, Won't Get Fooled Again. Those of you who are a little younger may think of it as the theme to CSI Miami from a few years ago. But those of us who are a little older remember it was actually The Who that had sung this back in 1971. And I'm going to read you just a few of the lyrics that were in this song. This is not all of them, but it says, I'll tip my hat to the new constitution Take a bow for the new revolution. Smile and grin at the change all around. 
pick up my guitar and play just like yesterday, then I'll get on my knees and pray we won't get fooled again. And then as the song goes on, he sings, the change it had to come, we knew it all along. We were liberated from the fold, that's all, and the world looks just the same and history ain't changed because the banners, they are flown in the next war. And then as the song is fading out, they sing, yeah, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. The disillusionment was, we're going to get a regime change and everything is going to change. But what they discovered is the more things change, the more they actually stay the same. It didn't bring in everything that they had thought it was going to. Well, I bring this up and this song came to my mind this week because as we're tracking through Daniel, Babylon is gone. So we've seen all the times that Daniel and his friends were in danger of their lives in Daniel 1 and Daniel 2 and Daniel 3. We've seen the way God has worked in Daniel chapter 4. And then in Daniel chapter 5, Daniel had been set aside and, and Babylon is going to fall. Will Daniel even survive through the fall of Babylon? But he actually does. And now Persia is in charge. There's a new boss in town. Will things be different or will things be the same? So let's dive into our text. Now, if you notice, there is a new kingdom that is coming. In Daniel chapter 6, verse 1, we read, uh, it pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom. A satrap was some sort of a government ruler that was kind of set up. You might think of almost as like governors in our state system. There were satrapies in uh, the Persian Empire. There weren't 120 of them, so several of these guys might be over one particular area. But Darius is setting them up. Now, it's kind of interesting, and I'm not going to go into it today. We're not exactly sure who Darius is. Uh, there are later King Dariuses, but they come much later. Uh, it does appear that Darius is a throne name personally. Uh, that some scholars think that it is, he's one of the generals that helped conquer Babylon, who only lived for a very short period of time and then died. Uh, Others think that it is actually a throne name for King Cyrus. I tend to think that it's a throne name for Cyrus. Darius was a, a common name for Persian kings. And we know that there are reasons why I'm saying this. Many kings back then had multiple names. That's one of the things that can get very confusing. They're called by several different things according to who's doing the calling. But whoever D Darius is here, he's setting up the empire because it's the largest empire in history. Babylon has seemed impressive. Babylon's just a small part of this Medo-Persian empire. So he has to organize it. So he sets 120 people up over it. And we learn that Daniel becomes one of three people that are over these 120. So Daniel seems to be prospering. And I want you to think of what it would be like to be Daniel. Remember that in Isaiah 44 uh, through 46... God had already said that a man named Cyrus was going to be raised up. He was going to come in from the east. He was going to put down the kingdom of Babylon, and he was going to restore the Jews to the promised land. Well, Daniel's watching. Cyrus marches in. He puts down Babylon. He's over the kingdom. And if you're Daniel, you have to say, well, I know what happens next. Yes, we're going to be restored. To the Everything is going to be 
better because I know who Cyrus is and it even calls him my anointed, my Messiah is the word. My Mashiach, my anointed one is Cyrus. He is going to come in and he is going to do this. And then sure enough, if you notice in verses one to three, Daniel's put in charge over these people. He's one of the highest rulers in the kingdom. You remember he had been that way uh, during the reign of Babylon, he had prospered. Belshazzar had put him aside, but then had promised, I'll make you even second in the, or, or third in the kingdom of Babylon if you can read the writing on the wall. Well, now it appears that Daniel's going to be second in the kingdom. You've got every reason to think new boss, new regime, everything is good. And then we find out the same old problems are still here. Notice in Daniel chapter 6, verse 4, the administrators and satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel. We've seen this before. Jealousy was part of why they had turned in uh, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego back in chapter 3. Here the same thing is going on. There is jealousy against Daniel. In fact, notice here, this isn't even persecution regarding the faith. They're not angry because Daniel's a faithful Jew. They're angry because Daniel is not corrupt. He won't go along with them, and he's getting promoted, and they're not. So they are jealous uh, at what is going on with Daniel, which is our first sign that things seem to be very similar. We're going to see a lot of parallels with Daniel chapter 3. But notice then in chapter and verses 4 and 5, we read that because they're jealous, they decide that they want to try and find corrupt uh, conduct in Daniel as a government official. Now, this is going to be shocking to you all, but you're going to have to take my word. It used to be that politicians use their power for their own benefit rather than for the people. I know you find this hard to believe, but I've researched it historically. That used to be what happened. Yes, uh, it used to be. If you're a politician here, I'm sorry, but not really. Uh, so... They assume we're going to go to Daniel, we're going to find the same thing in Daniel we find in ourselves, which is corruption. We're going to find he's taking bribes. We're going to find he's, he's doing things for his own good rather than the good of the people. And they go and they look at Daniel and they discover that's not the case. Daniel is actually striving to serve God in his calling to serve the kingdom of his exile. Now, this is amazing. Daniel, remember, is a faithful Jew. He is exiled from the land he loves and carried away to Babylon and forced to serve the very man who had destroyed and shattered everything he loved. But he did it, and he did it faithfully. And he serves through multiple kings. And then he's set aside by Belshazzar, but he even comes out and reads the writing on the wall. And now that a new kingdom has come in, they're raising Daniel up. And he doesn't say, well, I want nothing to do with you guys. I'm getting ready to go back. He says, okay, I've been raised to this position for such a time as this, so to speak, to quote from another exile in the Persian Empire. And Daniel is going to serve them. And I want to remind us just in passing, friends, this is a model for you and I. You are an exile. And you're going to be in exile until you wake up and see Jesus face to face or he returns. That is where we are in redemptive history. Every land is the land of our exile. 
And that is not a statement that I, I don't want to serve in the land of my exile. You need to remember, this is challenging. Daniel is serving in the highest level of government. These are pagans. This is not a Christian kingdom. This is a pagan kingdom. Think about your least favorite presidential administration, whatever that is, and put yourself in the cabinet. That's what's going on. That's what's happening here with Daniel. And notice that what he's doing is he is in the world, but not of it. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I'm going to cover it actually in after hours. If you tune in Tuesday, you'll kind of get you know, the director's cut and what's left on the floor. But I want to encourage you, we have to press into our culture. We have to serve in our callings, whether that is business or whether that is entertainment or working in politics or I stay home or I'm in education or whatever it is, we have to press in and serve, but we cannot compromise. And that's what Daniel's doing. And friends, it is not easy. It's a very difficult call, but it's what he's doing. And it's true even when the kingdom changes. The fact that there's a new person living in the White House doesn't alter my call. It doesn't change it at all. Da Daniel has watched. He's doing this, and we can read by this real quickly. The entire empire has changed. This is not a new person in 1611 uh, Pennsylvania Avenue. This is we were conquered by a foreign power. They've now set up a government, and you're supposed to serve in it. And that's what Daniel is doing. And friends, it's part of our call because we are exiles. No matter who's leading our nation, we are exiles. And so these people are looking at this and they're shocked. They're like, okay, well, look at this guy. He's like a unicorn. Here's a non-corrupt politician. He's doing exactly what he's supposed to be doing. He's above reproach. And so they realize that their only hope to trap Daniel is because of his commitment to God and his law. And it's not even that they're necessarily against God and his law. What they're just saying is, is if Daniel has to make a choice, the one thing we realize is he will not compromise on God and his law. As committed as he is to serving the king of Persia, he's more committed to his God. And so if we're going to find something, bribery's not going to work, corruption's not going to work, we're going to have to get something that causes conflict where serving God and serving the king's edict are going to come in conflict with one another. And so they know that he will not compromise obedience to God. He would die before he would disobey. Now that should be a challenge to you and me. Put yourself in that spot. Is that true of me? Is that what my friends think? That this person would die before they would disobey God. Now, we know that this is a call for us because the New Testament picks this up. It tells us that Christian exiles are called to a life of integrity so that the only accusation against us would be our first loyalty to being to Christ and his kingdom. Peter, who writes much to the church and says that we are in exile, we are exiles, we are strangers, we are aliens, uh, and he tells us that as a result, don't be surprised at fiery trials that come, a lot like Daniel 3. And he says this in 1 Peter 4, verses 15 and 16. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. I mean, I love that. We've gone from murder to meddling. 
Pretty, pretty big gap there, pretty big uh, widespread. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God, you bear that name. See, this sounds a lot like Daniel. What Peter is saying is, if you're in trouble for your own actions or for your own rebellious attitude, don't say, I'm suffering for Jesus. No, you're not. You're suffering for your own rebellious attitude. Now, I'm going to be blunt. I've watched Christians over the last 18 months, I'm suffering for Jesus. No, you're not. you got a rebellious attitude towards the government. And that ain't for Jesus. That's not who you're serving right now. You're serving, you know what, it's easy for anybody to be rebellious. That comes naturally. That's what we are. And if you don't think so, wait until next time somebody tells you something you don't like. And you'll find out just how rebellious you are. Ain't nobody telling me what to do. Hmm, that's, that's a lot like Jesus, right? See? That's, Peter says, don't let it be for that. If you get in trouble because of your own conduct, because of your own attitude, because you're poking your nose in places that it's not really your business to be, that's on you. But if you are being like Daniel and you are simply serving Jesus with everything you've got, and, there, and somebody is telling you, you cannot teach your children the gospel. You cannot worship God. You cannot read your Bible. Then you obey. And if you obey God, and if you suffer for that, so be it. Don't be ashamed of that. You hang in there. We have to realize as exiles that persecution may be our lot no matter what kingdom is ruling. New boss, I think it's gonna be good. It's Cyrus, the Lord's anointed. We're gonna, I'm working on a plan right now that I, Daniel, am gonna help draft up to return us to the promised land. Things are finally changing, except they're not. Because the next thing in the story is a plot to kill Daniel. So notice in verses 6 to 9, they come in and they give this crazy law to Darius. And probably what's going on here, because Medo-Persian emperors did not think of themselves as God. So it's not literally that he's going to pray to Darius. What it really more is, apparently, is he's going to be the mediator. Whoever, however you want to pray, you have to do it through Darius. Anything, whatever your, whoever your God is in this whole kingdom, you're going to do it through Darius. This is, again, very reminiscent of Daniel chapter 3. You remember Nebuchadnezzar has the huge statue out there, and what seems to be going on is I'm building unity. Nebuchadnezzar was young, he was new in his reign, and he's going to build unity among the people. Cyrus is older, but he's got a whole new empire that's going on here, and he wants unity, and the unity is going to go on in worship. But they put in the law, anybody who will not go along, and of course their intention is Daniel, will be thrown to the lions to be killed. And interestingly, it's got this phrase that recurs in Esther, which is another book of uh, God's people under the Medo-Persian uh, empire, that the law can't be changed. It's in Esther and it's here. Apparently, because in both places, what can happen is there can be a counter edict. In Esther, it's actually, we're gonna pass another law that's kind of contradictory to this one and then we'll just kind of let the two duke it out is more or less what happens there. 
That seems to be the way they're handling things. But all of this is nothing but a trap for Daniel. Now, Darius should have noticed, why is Daniel not here? What's going on? But he doesn't. So they pass it, and then Daniel finds out about the decree. And notice in verses 10 and 11, Daniel knows the decree. He's not ignorant. We're told very clearly when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows were open towards Jerusalem, and three, day, three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God just as he had done before. Notice, Daniel doesn't react. He doesn't protest. He doesn't make threats. He doesn't form a political action committee. What does he do? What I've always done. Three times a day, I go home, I get on my knees, I face towards Jerusalem, because even though Jerusalem is in ruins, I remember I'm part of the people of God. I remember that my home is not Babylon, my home is Jerusalem. I remember that all these gods that are around me, I got to walk by them every day on my way to the office. I got to walk by all these idols of Bel and Marduk and all these other gods. They're not the true God. It's the, the God of Israel is the true God. So I orient myself three times a day towards him. And it's a consistent practice in prayer. And notice I love uh, that it, what it says there, just as he had done before. This isn't something new. This is another thing that comes up. Sometimes we've never had a problem. You can get a lot of Americans. When I was down south a few years ago, there was all this fear about whether you could have the Ten Commandments up on courthouse walls. And a bunch of people in my home county were putting up Ten Commandments signs. I've never seen the Ten Commandments so much as I did driving down the road. Of course, I knew some of the people. I'm like, dude, off the top of my head as I'm driving by, I can name like seven of them you're breaking just right off the top of my head. I know you're breaking these. How about if we actually obey them? But see, what it was was all of a sudden, oh, you're telling me I can't? Well, I'll slap them up. Well, yeah, but see, you weren't doing this before. You weren't darkening the door of a church before. You didn't care to hear and obey God's word before. But by golly, now I'm going to. See, that, that's not what God's after. Daniel doesn't start something. Daniel's doing what Daniel's always done. It's been his regular practice, and he's simply doing his duty to God. And notice, he doesn't hide his obedience to God. See, he could have gone home, closed the windows, changed things, but Daniel knows in that case, see, I'm now being tested. It would have been okay if I had hidden my prayer before. I wasn't doing it for others to see, but I'm not going to change my obedience to God. He had years of walking faith with God. You've got to remember, so sometimes we see the, you know, the pictures of Daniel and the lions, and I looked at some this week, and sometimes Daniel is a lot younger than me in those pictures, except he's not. Daniel's like 85 at this point. Da Daniel's like my father's age at this point, not a young man. And he's been walking with God faithfully. Because please hear this. The test did not create Daniel's character. It merely revealed it. His character was already forged long before this test. So were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego long before Daniel chapter 3. It's too late to wait until the test comes you're going to do it before the test gets there. And so um, the conspirators see this. They're going over, they're watching. And so they spring the trap. And they report to, 
uh, to Darius what's going on. In verses 13 and 14, they accuse Daniel. They point out again, interestingly, that he's in exile. This is a good reminder to us because whatever else is the argument going on, our status as exiles is going to be brought up by others because you don't get with the program. You're not part of the group. You're you're always uh, second. Now, what's interesting here is Darius is distressed. This is where he is different. You remember Nebuchadnezzar's like, heat the fire seven times hotter. Darius is the opposite. He's like, how can I get Daniel out of this? He's distressed. He's bothered. He wants to save Daniel. And Darius is this powerful man over an empire. He's got all of this power at his control, but he can't save Daniel. Friends, that is a message to exiles. I don't care who is in the White House. They will not be your savior. And in fact, the day will come when because of something they've done, you find yourself in a pit. Whether you liked them or didn't like them, Darius loves Daniel. He respects Daniel. He doesn't want this to happen, but he's powerless to save Daniel because there is only one that can save an exile. And that is where our trust had better be. It had better be in God himself. And so, He's distressed, but he, nothing he can do can save because human power is limited. And so Daniel is thrown into the lion's den there in verses 16 and 17. He's thrown in, he's thrown in to be killed. And in fact, they make sure that, you know, picture this, you're put into a hole and then they roll a stone over the hole and then they seal it. As a believer, you ought to start hearing echoes of something else, okay? And they seal it and they put wax in it, and they put a cord over it, saying, nobody's going to get in here and rescue this guy out. He's going to die in this pit, and there's going to be no doubt that he is dead. Now, the amazing thing in verse 16 is Darius, who's responsible for this, is saying as they're getting ready to do it, may your God, whom you serve, continually rescue you. Picture like the stones being rolled across and he's looking in at Daniel saying, I'm praying, I hope God will rescue you. You've been so faithful to him. I I hope your God somehow can get you out of this. Bam. The stone is closed. It is sealed. And amazingly enough, Darius goes home and he's up all night long fretting. He doesn't eat. He doesn't get the entertainment that kings normally do. He cannot sleep a wink. He is fretting all night long. We're going to see in just a moment. That's quite a contrast apparently with how Daniel spent his night. Interestingly enough. But notice we get salvation and judgment in the pit of death. Darius goes back the next morning. And it's interesting, it's like at the first light of dawn. Anybody ever heard that before? First light of dawn. We're going to go there and see if death has won or not. And he, he clearly cares for Daniel. And he's got this anguished question. Has your God been able to save you? I couldn't do it, Daniel. My power reached its limit. Can your God save you? And notice again, Daniel, you are the servant of the living God. Your God, whom you serve continually. 
There is this reference back and back to how faithful and consistent Daniel has been. And Daniel then cries out, notice, and I love his gracious reply. Now let's be honest. If I was there, the reply would probably come out, yeah, you bum, no thanks to you. What kind of a dumb law was this? Okay, but he doesn't. What does he say? Oh, king, live forever. Okay, it's first off, you know, the niceties that you do with royalty. But it's, it's Daniel saying, I'm not holding this to your account, Darius. Yes, I was thrown in here, but I want you to know God's angel, the angel of the Lord, has come and is with me, kind of like, again, Daniel chapter 3. There's a fourth one in the fire. He has come, and he has shut the mouth of the lion that was roaring and growling and prowling and wanting me for prey. He has shut the mouth of the lion. And I've sat here, and it's almost like the picture is, I can almost picture the pre-incarnate Christ talking with Daniel about what's to come, talking with Daniel about Yahweh's deliverance, talking with Daniel about how good and gracious and kind our God is right in the midst of the den of lions. Darius can't sleep. Daniel's raising a hallelujah because the angel is there with him. And so God delivers Daniel. And notice, Daniel says, look, I didn't wrong God in this. I didn't wrong you. Daniel's not saying I'm perfect. He's saying, oh, king, I just did what I've always done. I've always prayed three times a day. I kept praying three times. I wasn't doing this to be rebellious to you. And you know that, king. I didn't do anything. And so they lift Daniel out. There is not a mark on his body, again, like Daniel 3, no smoke, no smell, no nothing. God has completely protected and saved him. And he is delivered. And it shows the sovereignty of God. Darius, you couldn't save me, but my God did. Now, what is interesting, however, is there's a strong note on the sovereignty of God, but I want us to note that we're told no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Now, this is not a statement that everybody who trusts in God gets delivered. We're going to come back in a minute. Daniel's actually referenced in the New Testament in Hebrews 11 right before it turns and says others were not delivered. But Daniel was delivered. But notice there is an active trust on Daniel's part. It's not just God is sovereign. Daniel is actively reaching out in faith. It's, it's almost like trust and obey. It's almost like Daniel knows that song because that's what he's done. I trusted. I walked with my God. I obeyed. And you know what? Whether God delivered me or not, I simply obey. Now, some of you, I almost heard the gasp when I read verse 24, because here's reality. There's salvation in the pit. There's also judgment. Daniel is saved. The very people who persecuted him are not. Remember the very people who threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in were burned up. Here, we see that they go in and the point of the story is ultimately, the, it's not that the lions were full and didn't feel like eating. Because Daniel's no sooner out than they throw these people in and they don't even reach the ground before the lions have already pounced on them 
and killed them. Clearly the lions are hungry. It's that God had saved Daniel. Now, this is not, the writer to Daniel is not saying, and this is a good law, that you should take your political enemies and have them thrown the lions. It's not, it's not, it's just stating what happened. And this is the kind of thing that happened quite often in the ancient world. But friends, I also want to say it's a powerful warning of judgment for us. Those who reject God and his gracious provision. It's not popular today, but there is judgment. We like to hear salvation, but I got news, there is judgment. And any removal of that, all it ends up doing is not only denying the truth, it lessens the salvation. See, it becomes, oh, you know, the lion wasn't that big a deal. Yeah, the lion was a very big deal. The lion was death, unless God intervened. Now at that point, Darius does a hymn of praise, and we're not going to cover that today. We're going to come back to that next week. We're going to look at it, his hymn of praise, and also how Daniel prospered, thrived in exile, which is what God's call for us is. But what we're going to do is we're going to apply the word, two things, and then come to the, the Lord's table. Number one, I want to ask again, and I've done this several times in this series, do I recognize my status as an exile? Friend, you and I are exiles, just like Daniel. Um, and this is so important for us to realize. I, oh, a number of weeks ago, we were having our connect group when we had first started this series on Daniel. We were talking about exiles, and, and I just asked, how many people had ever heard about us being exiles? And virtually everybody in the connect group said the only time I've ever heard that was when you were talking about it here, which is a recurrent theme you seem to bring up a lot. And I got to tell you, I sat with a group of leaders the other day who were discouraged. And in part, they were discouraged because the way they feel things are going on in our country. And I just said, you're, you're an exile. I got bad news for you. It's not going to end. You're, you're not hanging on until the next election cycle. You are an exile. And so am I. Regimes change, but it all stays the same. It's a new boss, the same as the old boss. It hasn't changed. Because if you don't sense that, you're not living like an exile. You're living like a Babylonian. There's no way to live faithful to God. There's no way to trust and obey and not regularly experience the sense of, I love this place and it is not my home. And this is true. I want you to notice, and I'm bringing this up, because Daniel had every reason to hope things would be different under the Medo-Persian Empire. Again, it's in the scripture. Cyrus is my Messiah, my anointed, my Christ, if you use the Greek term. Every reason to believe the same. But you know what Daniel discovers when he's down there? I believe possibly the angel of the Lord said, Daniel, do you understand now? New boss, same as the old boss. Don't get fooled again, Daniel, because it, your hope is not in the kingdom's of men. Amen. 
God's exiled people must realize and actively embrace, not, not, oh, I hate this, actively embrace that we live in Babylon. And our only hope is the kingdom of God, not the kingdoms of man. Now, this is so challenging for us. The first guy that really clearly kind of laid out the first theologian that talked in these terms of the city of God and the city of man, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man was Augustine. And I never cease to be amazed that in 410, when Rome was sacked, the cry from Christians was, oh my gosh, how will we survive without Rome? To which Augustine had to say, you do know 80 years ago they were killing us, right? You do know 80 years ago, we were just praying for Rome to be done with. But see, we forget. Oh, no, no, no. Rome is now our salvation. No, it's not. And it will turn on you again in a moment. Because no kingdom of man is ever where our trust lies. God's exiled people must realize and embrace that our true citizenship and our ultimate loyalty is with Jesus and his kingdom, not our earthly home, nor its rulers. Okay? Again, I love America. I was privileged to serve in America. I, I grieved when over a dozen of my Marine brothers died this past week. Okay? I love my country. This is not my home. My true citizenship is in heaven. My hope is in heaven. And that did not change back in November, and it will not change in November of 2024 because it doesn't matter because I know new boss, same as the old boss. This is simply the kingdom of man. So God's exiled people, here's the challenge. We have to be like Daniel. Because when I hear this, you know what I want to do? I want to go buy some land in remote Idaho or Washington, and I want to have nothing to do with any of this. But to choose that is to choose unfaithfulness. Because here's the hard news. You're in exile. You must press in to live in this culture, to serve in this culture. And if that is not making you say right now, oh, jeez, you're not hearing me. It's not easy. It's very challenging. It's very hard. But we have to serve and fulfill our callings, even though you might get persecuted. Daniel's doing his calling. He's doing it well. He's doing it faithfully. He's doing it without corruption. And what's his reward? Welcome to the pit of lions. That's what it is. You and I may do that. The more faithfully we serve, the more we may find ourselves in the lion's den. But see, it doesn't matter. I'm not living for their approval. I'm living for the approval of Jesus. Because whether Daniel was delivered from the den of lions or whether the Lord had chosen to let him die in the den of lions, you know what he's going to hear? Well done, good and faithful servant. Ah, I am pleased with you. And that, friends, is what we want to hear. So have I recognized and embraced that this will be my status throughout life? This is the hard thing, okay? But, but please hear, you 
are an exile. And you would not be any more in exile if tomorrow China and Russia and everybody else came together and invaded America and we fled and we were suddenly living in Canada, okay? And you were saying, I'm a boot to go crazy up here, okay? <laughs> Y'all caught my humor there. All right. You're going to be no more in exile were that to happen than you are right now. Doesn't matter where you live, when you are. Do I understand that? Do I see that? I'm hammering this point because the answer is most of the American church does not. We've grown fat, we've grown lazy, we've grown comfortable, and we think somehow we're the new Israel. You're not. We're not. This country is not. The church is the people of God. And you've got more in common with an Afghani Christian that right now is facing martyrdom than you do with unbelieving neighbors here. They are your family. They are common citizens. Do we understand that? And I even saw this week, you know, I saw a meme making its way around Facebook. You know, it was hands folded in prayer with an American flag across it. We've already got an idolatry problem going. And then secondly, on top of that, I looked and it said, pray for our troops and pray for America. Okay, that, that's good. What about pray for Afghanistan? What, what about pray for your brothers and sisters who have already been told we're coming and we're gonna kill you? Do we care about them? Or does my prayer stop with my people? Because if it does, I can tell you right then, I don't need to go any further. You don't understand you're in exile. Have we recognized and embraced that? Secondly, am I walking close with Jesus during my exile? We're gonna look at this a lot more next week, so I'll go through it briefly. Daniel survived and thrived because he regularly communed with God in prayer three times a day, we're told regularly he was engaged with it and he'd been doing this for years the picture is throughout this whole time from Daniel 1 to 6 Daniel's a man of prayer he's regularly communing with God he consistently walks with God in prayer in the word we're going to see in Daniel 9 when we actually look at a lengthy recorded prayer of Daniel it's so full of scripture Daniel has meditated on the word of God he's walking with God in his personal conduct so when the trials come Daniel doesn't have to say well what do I do I do what I've always been doing I just keep marching the same way I've been marching because I've been faithfully walking with God like Daniel, you and I have got to develop an active trust in God via our daily walk. Let me be clear, mere intellectual assent will not sustain through the trials of exile. It won't. I, if you've been around me for more than five minutes, you know I like to study. I am not a turn-off-your-brain Christian, okay? That's dumb. God, God gave you this. He wants you to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But he wants you to love him with all of that. Intellectual assent will not get you through. You've got to personally trust in Jesus Christ. Walk with him. So the questions, the question for us, am I walking close with Jesus? Or 
has the weariness of exile worn me down? I sat with a bunch of leaders the other day who were weary. They were very weary. And I get it. The last 18 months has been wearying. It's been tiring. But you know what I need more than I need a nap? I need Jesus. I need to walk with him. I need to be close with him. If I've walked with him day by day by day, when they lower me in the pit, Darius might not be able to sleep, but I can commune with God. Whether I'm delivered or whether I'm eaten, I can commune with God because I've already been doing so. Friends, I encourage you, commune with God now so you're prepared to commune with him in the lion's den. Prepare to commune with him now so that you'll be ready then. Now, we're going to come to the Lord's table. And this is a table in the presence of our enemies. As I mentioned briefly, this whole episode points us forward to Christ. Daniel and Jesus are framed by jealous leaders. Daniel and Christ are both arrested during a time of prayer. Daniel and Christ are uh, both before rulers who wanted to get him out of it. Pilate's trying to figure out how to let Jesus go. Darius is trying to figure out how to do it, but they can't. Their hands are tied. These powerful leaders cannot deliver. But I want to show you, you know where there's a difference? Daniel and Christ both go down into the pit. And Daniel was delivered, and Jesus was not. He was not delivered. Thanks be to God. Because in his not being delivered, you and I are. Daniel was lifted out of the pit alive. Jesus crashed forth out of the tomb, having shut the mouth of the great lions, Satan and death. That is what this points us forward to. And I remind you that we're going to, in just a moment, read Psalm 23. And as we come to it, we have this great confession in Psalm 23, that he prepares a table for me where? In the presence of my enemies. Right here in the land of my exile. Surrounded. Doesn't matter. Because this is a table nobody can make for you. No new boss spreads this table. Jesus Christ spreads this table, and he does it right in the presence of our enemies. And then he invites you and I to come because Christ, our chief shepherd, has conquered death. He spreads this table for us, and he invites us. So what we're going to do is we're going to stand, and we're going to do kind of a recitation of Psalm 23 together. And so you'll see up here, I'm going to read the part in white and y'all quote the part in yellow back. But I want us to hear it back and forth as we're reading this. This is our confession of faith. In the land of your exile, in the lion's pit, this is our confession. The Lord is my shepherd. 
I shall not be in want. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Men, you may be seated. I invite you, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you believe that he alone is your hope of salvation, that he lived for you, that he died for you, then I say, come people of God to the table the Father has prepared. Come, eat, and drink, receiving the grace of God to cover your sins and to strengthen you for your walk in the land of your exile. Father, meet with us here at the table that you have so graciously provided by the power of your Holy Spirit through the work of Jesus Christ, we ask in his name, amen. If you can go ahead and pull your cups out and peel the top part back for the bread. What I received from the Lord, I pass on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, you are the living God, and you endure forever. When your people languished in slavery under Pharaoh, you delivered them by your mighty right hand. And when your people were hungry in the wilderness waste, you delivered them from starvation by providing manna, the bread of heaven, for them to eat. And when we were languishing under the dominion of sin and death, you sent Jesus, the true bread of heaven, to deliver us from Satan and death and to feed our souls with eternal life. We take this bread today as a sign of our faith that you are the living God who delivers and saves, the Lord who provides a table for us in the presence of our enemies that we may feast in the land of our exile until your goodness and love bring us to our eternal home. Brothers and sisters, take and eat. Jesus, you are the living God, and you endure forever. You rescue and you save. You perform signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. You have delivered us from the power 
of the great lion, Satan, who prowls and roars and would destroy us if it were not for you. You have delivered us from him by your own blood, redeeming us and making us the people of God. So Lord, we take this cup as a sign of our faith that you are our shepherd and we are the flock of your hand. Brothers and sisters, take and drink. Let's stand together as we cry out to the Holy Spirit and then uh, receive a word of blessing. Holy Spirit, you are the living God and you endure forever. When we were but a valley of dead, dry bones, you came upon us and we stood to our feet and lived. You have given us a new heart, removing from us our heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh, putting the law of God in our minds and writing it on our hearts. And you, O Spirit, dwell in us, moving us to follow the law of our God rather than the ways of the land of our exile. Fill us, Spirit of God, until we overflow. Commune with us, whether we walk through the fire or dwell in the lion's pit, so that we might walk with you as the grateful and faithful people of God. We ask this in the name of the living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, to whom be glory forever and ever. And God's exile people say, amen. amen. Uh, this week, instead of a benediction out of the scripture directly, I'm going to do one from St. Patrick's Breastplate Prayer. This is a great prayer. We sang Be Thou My Vision today, the old great Celtic hymn. Uh, this is based on a prayer that supposedly goes back to St. Patrick, who in a true land of exile, surrounded by enemies, regularly prayed this to be protected by God. May Christ be your shield today. Christ before you. Christ behind you. Christ beneath you. Christ above you. Christ on your right. Christ on your left. May Christ be with you. Christ be in you alone and in multitude, near and afar, for all you face and for all your life, that you may live in the protection and power of his blessing so that you might be a blessing to others. You are blessed. Go forth and be a blessing. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.